it's a family disease and we don't take any prisoners. And if you have the misfortune of loving a guy like me, you're going to be touched by my alcoholism. And there's nothing either one of us can do about it. I've lost the power of choice and you can't stop loving me. So we're joined at the hip and we're going on this insane ride together till either I get sober or I die. And that's the only way you're going to be free. But the misconception is you're not being damaged. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. From Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas, that was the voice of Mr. Don L that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you're going to be hearing so much more from Don in just a moment, but... First things first, this here episode is being brought to you by Hillary and Brad. And so you ask yourself, what did Hillary and Brad do to get mentioned like that? Well, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yeller, the little yeller, excuse me, my tongue is getting a little twisted there, the little yeller donate tab, and they made a a contribution. So thank you so much, Hillary and Brad, uh, for your generosity. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. So sometimes I debate about whether I should share these kind of things on the pod. I have a tendency to be a little bit sappy, cheesy, whatever you want to call it sometimes. And right before I got on the microphone here to record an episode, um, I don't know, I just got overcome by gratitude. A lot of things were going through my mind. I was thinking about y'all. When I say y'all, everybody listening uh, to this episode. episode right now and the folks who have continued to listen over the years, I, I, I was thinking about the life that I have been granted that has some level of breadth and depth to it. And I owe all of that to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was thinking about my sobriety and and I talk about this quite often and, and I don't know why, but I was... <laughs> God reached down, picked me up by the scruff of the neck, and I know, and, and he dropped me in Alcoholics Anonymous, and for up to this point, one day at a time, and I know there's no guarantees on tomorrow, I'm very well aware of that, but up to this point, I've been sober for a few days in a row, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, I was thinking about my family, I was thinking about the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and 
all the love that I've shared. I went to a couple different meetings yesterday. One of them was a great speaker meeting where I got to see a friend of mine speak, and it was absolutely fantastic. And so all of that was going through my little pea brain at once, and um, I just kind of got overwhelmed with some emotion. And 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 I want to say this, uh, you know, not every day is like that for me. I, there, I, I could I could quit recording this particular episode today and and spin off into some sort of selfish behavior, um, and, and, and you know, and that's possible. I guess what I'm saying is there's ups and downs in sobriety, but when I have these moments of joy, I try to remember them. Uh, thanks to this podcast, I can actually put an audio recording out there to try to remember it. Um, but anyway, that was going on with me right before I got on the mic and I just uh, thought I would go ahead and share. God bless y'all. Thank you for listening. And I, I know, I know, I know you have so many things that you could do with your time. And the fact that you come in here and spend some time with me and the guests and it it, uh, it just warms my heart. Uh, it truly does. Consider this, if you will, a really, really big audio hug. If you don't like hugs, just back away from the speakers. It's okay. I'm not going to hurt you. <laughs> okay. Now, on to Mr. Don L. from Bellingham, Washington. This one we call Step 1 because he basically ends up talking about Step 1 throughout the entire episode. It is chock full. The episode is chock full of nuts. There's a lot of meat in this episode, and you may want to take some notes. You may want to listen to this while you're not driving or doing anything else. Don is a brilliant guy with tons of intriguing thoughts and experiences. He talks about the incomplete story of victimization. He talks about having one foot in the grave and another foot on a banana peel. And I love that phrase. One foot in the grave and another on a banana peel. He talks about how alcohol is a subtle foe and alcoholism can be a demanding mistress. I thought of the uh, film uh, Fatal Attraction when Don mentioned that. But nonetheless, uh, he uh, talks about self-knowledge as it relates to alcoholism. His first meeting, the four horsemen, and much, much more. Believe me, that is truly the tip of the iceberg with Don. All right, everybody, sit back, enjoy this one, and I will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. You know, I still, I can't remember at one point when I say plenty. Oh, I think there was like one point somebody wrote in from Ireland and, and, and I just like, I said plenty. Oh, like I was impersonating an Irish person somehow, some way. And I think that's where that came from, but I can't even remember. So I'll need to go back and listen to my episodes, but nonetheless, we will have plenty. Oh, listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy Don. Okay, everybody. So today. We're sitting here with a an interview that I've been really, really looking forward to, and that is Mr. Don L. is sitting in front of me here now. So, Don, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you wish, and tell people where you live, please. Absolutely. I'm Don L. I live in Bellingham, Washington. My sobriety date is September 16th. 1991. That puts me at the 31-year mark. 
very grateful for that. That's great. And Bellingham, where is Bellingham? Is that outside of uh, Seattle or is it more well, central? Don't feel, don't feel bad if you don't. We are in the Pacific Northwest. The easiest way to wrap your head around it is go to Seattle, drive about 100 miles north, and you'll find yourself 20 miles shy of the Canadian border. And that's where Bellingham, Washington is, uh, America's first defense against Canada. And uh, <laughs> beautiful town. You should look it up online. You'll be very impressed. It's a college town, big university there, right on the Puget Sound Bay. Uh, one of the Cascade Mountains in the background, Mount Baker, which holds two distinctions that are very interesting. One, uh, the first snowboard park in America was built at Mount Baker Resort. The other interesting part is it holds the world, not the American record, but the world record for snowfall in a year, which was over a thousand inches. And that's our local mountain. And uh, interestingly enough, since we're suddenly talking topography and geography, uh, Although we have a mountain that you see from everywhere in town, it's literally an hour drive from my front door to the summit. Uh, we get very little snow in the lowlands. It's just geographically where this mountain is located. It catches all the storms coming down from Alaska and off of the Pacific. And literally, it could be sunny in Bellingham and snowing like the Dickens up on Mount Baker. So it's what you would imagine when you think Pacific Northwest. 150-foot trees, abundant wildlife, bays, and deer, and bear. And it, if you love nature, it's a lovely place to be. We suggest people visit in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. My wife was watching something, I think, on HGTV the other night. And she's, she looked at me, and she rarely says this. She said it about Colorado a couple of times, but she said, you know, Maybe we should move to Washington. That looks like a wonderful place. And I've been up there many times. And I, if I was starting over without any friends or family or anything like that, and I had to pick somewhere to go, it would definitely be the Pacific Northwest. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, it really is. Okay, so um, let's talk about Don L. a little bit. Uh, you know, what he was like, what happened, what he's like now. Uh, around that continuum, you just start wherever you start. First of all, did you grow up in uh, Washington? No, I grew up at a young age in Hollywood, California. Ah. I, I actually graduated from Hollywood High School, if you can believe that. Really? So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a city kid from L.A. I've been up in the Bellingham area for about 18 years now. I moved up here with just shy of 14 years of sobriety. And that's a whole story in itself that I may or may not get into today. Okay. So where did it? So you, so you obviously grew up in uh, uh, Southern California. Um, you just kind of go where you want to go in terms of your story and, you know, what it was like, I guess, on the first part. Okay. Well, you know, I'll just give you a little background. Uh, like many of us, uh, I have two childhood stories. The first one is the one that I dragged into Alcoholics Anonymous with me. And that would be the story of explanation, I, I suppose. Uh, because if you're going to be a drunk and drink the way that I drank, uh, it can't be your fault. If it's your fault, you might actually have to do something about it. And uh, we can't have that. It's too valuable. It's the only uh, 
thing in my life that's ever provided any relief or comfort or hope is my relationship with the bottle. So that's the story I bring into AA. And it's a, it's a tragic tale. And uh, it's an incomplete story. But it is about growing up in Hollywood, a uh, single mom, three kids, poverty, tough neighborhood, alcoholism in the home, some physical abuse. You know, you can see how easily it rolls off my tongue. And the reason that is, is it's very practiced. By the time I come to AA, I've been telling a very uh, complete story of victimization for a lot of years. Uh, then I have the story that I know to be true today, which is more complete and is produced by uh, the work that we do in AA uh, in the 12 steps, most specifically the inventory process in steps four and five, where for the first time I get down in black and white what really happened. And what that process does for a guy like me is with or without my permission, if I follow direction, it's going to remove the boundaries, the narrative the explanation. And it's really going to leave me with the stark reality of what happened. And it's interesting, at least to me, and for a lot of people I've encountered in recovery, the things that we conveniently forget on our way to recovery that allows us to tell this story, this incomplete story of victimization. I mean, uh, when we're new in, in recovery, I hear a lot of people's stories when they're young in recovery. And it just all it is is terrible where they came from and how they were raised. And after they're here a few years, the story starts to change. And mine did after I did inventory. My mother, for example, she's alcoholic, been sober a while now. Uh, she raised three kids on her own. Uh, her husband deserted her, left her pregnant with her third kid. She didn't run away, never took a dime of welfare, made sure those kids were fed, got them to school, took two buses to work and two buses home, devoted her life to the safety and the moral raising of her children. A woman that by simple classification should be called a saint, uh, when I came to AA, I was filled with spite and rage and venom for this very woman that I've just described as a selfless individual. So that's a lack of perception on my part that I think is corrected by good inventory if that exists. Uh, I know that I had teachers, athletic coaches, friends, I was well-liked. In fact, I had every opportunity to excel at the game of life that any young man could have been afforded. Uh, I believe that God blessed us all with certain skills, aptitudes, and abilities. That's right from the big book. And I certainly had mine. I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm not a dummy. And uh, I, I tested off the charts. I was in advanced classes. I was a guy that was supposed to go places. And for whatever reason, I ended up more dead than alive at age 31 in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, doesn't have anything to do with environment or how I was raised. Now, those things may temper and form my personality, and they may give me quite a bit to overcome in terms of victimization, but that's not why I'm alcoholic. And one of the glaring uh, points of that is my older sister who grew up in the same environment, and all she did was graduate high school and get a job and put herself through college and earn not one but two degrees and has been a successful child psychologist for her entire professional career and got married and raised a family and did it by the numbers with society and never had a problem with alcohol or any other substances. 
So it really is going to be hard for me to hang my hat on environment uh, when there's somebody that grew up in the same house that excelled. Uh, so you start to, through the process of recovery, these delusions, these false psychotic beliefs that we have about ourselves and others, they start to get dismantled through the process of the steps. And of course, this takes a great deal of willingness and open-mindedness, which is usually supplied by the failure of our own human resources. But I I didn't see it coming. And most of us don't. If you had told me at age 17, what was you know going to happen to me in the next 12 years, I would have laughed at you. I would have said it was impossible. I was our graduating class athlete. I had a ton of friends. I had the stereotypical high school romance. And But by the time I'm 19, I'm drinking drunk on a daily basis. And the, that's not the interesting shift. You would think that would be from a guy who was pretty straight-laced, never did any narcotics, maybe had a beer or two up to that point at 17. But at 19, I'm drinking drunk every night and doing a lot of other substances. Uh, you would think that's the big shift. That's not the shift. The shift is I didn't see anything wrong with it. You see, that's the mental obsession of alcoholism that sometimes we overlook. That you can take somebody who didn't want anything to do with that kind of life. I had seen what alcoholism did within my own family. Alcoholism doesn't run in my family. It gallops. So I had plenty <laughs> of examples, right, of why I didn't want to drink. And I didn't. I avoided that kind of behavior for most of high school. But by the time high school was over, I was drinking quite a bit. And by 19, I'm, I'm a daily drunk. And once again, the fact that red flags in my own mind didn't go up or I didn't think, wow, this is a big change and this is dangerous. Very, It's funny. We find our people. Water seeks its own level. And from the beginning, I wasn't participating in this type of behavior with the Boy Scouts. I find my tribe. I find people that are hiding behind that shield of nonconformity, actually afraid of life, but hiding behind that shield. Yeah, I'm not going to go to college and get a degree and do it society's way. That's a loser's game. I'm young. I'm strong. I'm free. I'm going to do what I want. And we all sang some song, some variation of that theme. And we ran down the road 100 miles an hour with one foot in the grave and one foot on the banana peel. And it was awesome. <laughs> and that's the point I want to make. I think if I had been drinking drunk on a daily basis at 19 and all hell had broken loose, perhaps, no guarantees because we'll never know, perhaps that would have caught my attention. But it, it, that's not what happened. What happened is you took a, although on the outside I presented well, I had a wonderful stage character at a young age. I look happy. I look content. I excel at the things society tells me to excel at. I'm a good boy. But inside, there's an uneasiness. Inside, there's insecurity. Inside, there's a feeling that I'm a fraud. There's this anxiousness that I've been born with that I don't understand, that I don't have any explanation for, that I've heard so many thousands of people talk about in recovery that this angst, this how does this work, this gosh, when they gave out the rule book of life, I must have been absent that day. These feelings of inadequacy, inadequacy not, not fitting into life, all that was alive and well. 
until I got drunk for the first time, not my first drink, but until I got enough alcohol on board in one setting to get there. And we all know where there is because alcohol, as much as anything, it transports me. It takes me to the land of I don't care. And suddenly all this anxiety and this worry for the first time in my life, I was doing what I what I was doing with who I was doing it with. And I didn't want to change anything. I was okay being me. I was okay with you being you. The judgment that I had of myself and the rest of the world seemed to drip away. I suppose, for lack of a better explanation or definition, I had my first spiritual awakening because I felt the nearness, not just of the spirit of the universe, but of humanity. I felt part of the game. And at almost a primal level, when you get drunk, when you're young and you're alcoholic, I think what happens is something speaks to our the marrow in our bones that lets us know we're going to be doing more of this. We don't know what it's going to look like, and we don't know what the cost is going to be, but that those are details that can be worked out later. <laughs> we fall in love, as Dr. Silkworth in The Doctor's Opinion in the Big Book says, we fall in love with the effect produced by alcohol. Now, here's the problem with that. As an alcoholic, I only live in my own body and I only think in my own mind. If you ask that question in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous to a group of alcoholics and say, what's the effect produced by alcohol? You might get a similar answer to what I just gave, being united with the universe, feeling the nearness of humanity, having our fears fall from us, being able to take a breath to all the way to our backbone for the first time, all of that. What we don't realize is we react very differently to alcohol than 90% of the people on the planet. If you were to ask 90% of the people on the planet, what's the effect produced by alcohol, you would get a very different answer. And I know that because I've done my research. And uh, years years ago, I have a brother-in-law who, uh, he knows his way around a cocktail. There's no doubt about it. He's certainly not an alcoholic and certainly not even a heavy drinker. But he likes to have a drink every now and then. And we've been very close for many years. And I said to him, I said, Larry, what's the effect produced by alcohol when you drink quite often? And he said, well, it's a weird question, but I'll play along. And I was in recovery, so he, he, he knew where my head was at. He said, well, Don, every now and then I feel like having a drink. It doesn't have to be a bad day or a celebration. Just I decide I want to have a drink. And I drink the drink. And it produces a feeling in me that I would label as pleasurable. In fact, it goes so well, I usually order a second drink. But I got to tell you, Don, somewhere usually in that second drink, about halfway through it, I start to feel it and I stop. And I was flabbergasted. I said, no, you don't. You don't stop. That's when you hit the accelerator. It's about to get good. There's a wonderful time ahead. And, And I asked him to continue. And he goes, yeah, I start to feel a little anxious. I start to feel a little out of control. I start to feel that people are looking at me, a little paranoia. And uh, I don't like it. It's not pleasurable. So I I just stop. And uh, I have the opposite effect when I drink. My paranoia leaves. My anxiety leaves. I don't worry if people are looking. None of that. And what I don't realize is that he was having a normal reaction to beverage alcohol, that what I'm having is an abnormal reaction to alcohol. Now, if you only live in your own body and think in your own mind, why in the world would you ever 
think that you're having an abnormal reaction. You know, uh, there's a little throwaway line in the, in the big book that we underestimate. And it just says this, alcohol is a subtle foe. Well, one of the subtle natures of alcoholism and alcohol in an alcoholic's body is we don't get a warning when the phenomenon of craving is engaged. You put alcohol of any type into my body because I process it differently. I don't get a message that I'm talking too loud or I'm feeling anxious and maybe we don't want to do this. I only get one message and the message is simply in a word, more. And it feels natural and it found it feels necessary. I want to be clear about this. Uh, my drinking over the years might have appeared bizarre or dangerous or overbearing to the people that were witnessing it, but it never did to me. I've never taken a drink in my life that I didn't think was necessary and accurate. It's always felt that way inside me that it absolutely had to happen. So from the beginning, I'm in the grips of something I don't understand. I have a problem that centers mainly in my mind because it's going to keep leading me back to this solution, regardless of consequence. And I have a body that's going to demand that I continue to drink once I engage. Now, as bad as all that sounds, that's not the real problem. The real problem is I don't have any of this information. So I'm having a very good time early in my drinking, going up the ladder in business, making a ton of money. Uh, I seem to have a, one of these things I found out in inventory is I had been taught a work ethic growing up. I didn't know that. And it served me well my entire professional career. I've always known how to work. I wasn't born with that. I was taught that. I came from the family that I grew up in that I despised when I got sober. Another thing I can be grateful for. But I went up the ladder in business. I'm doing, from the outside looking in, I look like a guy having a great life. I'm dating up a storm. I'm going to concerts. I'm taking trips. I'm making a lot of money. I'm driving nice cars. Everything looks great. But alcoholism is a demanding mistress. And... <laughs> One of the things that alcoholism does, and you've heard many people, including myself, when we get to recovery, we say things like this. By the time I got sober, my life had become very small. Well, that's not possible. Uh, your life is your life. It's The reason it feels that it gets small is because of the expansion of alcoholism. Alcoholism expands and it takes away space for other things in our life. And it's not that it's removing these things without our permission. We are turning them in without a fight and we don't know it. And what it feels like is I'm losing interest in other things. I'm losing interest in the athletics that I've always cherished and played so much in my life. By the time I'm 23, 24, I'm, I'm not as active athletically. I'm losing interest in friends. I'm losing, I'm gaining interest in the drinking game. I'm, I'm more interested in where are we going? Where's the party? What are we doing? And like many of us, what creeps into my story at 23, 24 years old is what we simply label as trouble. And trouble comes in a lot of different forms. And trouble is, alcoholics don't get, <laughs> we don't get sober based on trouble. What happens when trouble comes in our life is first we realize that Today, it's so easy because I look back and it's understood, but why it was happening, I didn't realize that my alcoholism gave me the 
two best friends a drinking drunk ever had, which is justification and rationalization. If you're going to take it to the end, if you're going to take your alcoholism to the finish line, uh, you're going to need those friends for the ride. And, uh, and I'll give you an example of that. We start to become accustomed or accepting, at least I did. I remember the first time I woke up in a jail cell out of a blackout. And I'm in a drunk tank and I don't know what I've done. And I don't remember anything other than being in a bar. And now I'm in jail and I was mortified. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, what did I do? How did I end up here? I've got this amazing job. I've got amazing friends. I'm an amazing guy. I'm not the wake up in jail guy. This, this is unacceptable. And I didn't know much on that hangover morning, but I knew this. I will never, ever wake up out of a blackout in a jail cell again. I knew that. You fast forward five, six years, and I wake up out of a blackout in jail for the 15th time. And it's a completely different vibe. Uh, I'm calm. Oh, God, I'm in jail. I hope I didn't do anything too bad. And it just become the new normal. Through repetition and failure, we will learn to accept a life that is truly unacceptable. At the end of my drinking, if you would put a normal, healthy, mature person into my life for, say, six hours, they would have run down the street in terror. Yet, what did it become for me? Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Friday night. The life of the drunk, the effort, the pain, both physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, that goes with it. That I look back at it and I go, it was so hard. It was so difficult. It took singleness of purpose to just stay in the game. And all the demands of being a drunk and drinking must be met. I look back and I go, how did I do that? How in the world could I do that seemingly forever, endlessly? And the answer is the same thing we say in AA all the time, don't we? One day at a time. You don't destroy your life overnight. You don't live... You don't lose a decade of your life overnight. You do it one day at a time. And so, but when trouble comes in my story, I brush it off. It's so easy. I, you know, you, you got to be able to do things like this. Go to jail. Go to jail for a couple of weeks, you know, and upon your release to face your family. Now, this is the family that loves you and wants the best things in the world for you. I had to be able to look my family in the eye with a smile on my face and a laugh, say, well, <laughs> Everybody goes to jail once in a while. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they really don't. Uh, uh, when I was early in sobriety, I would occasionally ask somebody, I'd become friendly with somebody that wasn't an AA, and I'd ask them if they'd ever been to jail. I stopped asking that question. It freaks people out. Like, well, no, I've never been to jail. Why would you ask me that? If you ask it in AA, you know, half the room at least will raise their hand and go, of course I've been to jail. And they'll, they'll look at you like, that's a dumb question. Why would you ask that? Of course I've been to jail. <laughs> when Dr. Silkworth wrote in the doctor's opinion, our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. The list that we could write down mm. about what became normal. Think about that. Occasionally being handcuffed, occasionally going to jail. Occasionally not knowing where your car is, occasionally having to apologize to the person that you love more than anything in the world for acting that way, saying those things, breaking those things. 
on and on and on. Once again, I'm grateful. I didn't ruin Thanksgiving. There's a good chance I won't ruin uh, Christmas. Uh, New Year's Eve has a good shot. You know, I couldn't say that before I, I got sober. And uh, I never meant for it to happen. But the, the, the interesting thing about my story and many of our stories is there's a transition period where a guy like me who's gone up the ladder and I've done well in business and I have all these things, that these trappings, if you will, that indicate to me I'm okay. Listen, I'm paying my rent. I'm paying my bills. I drive a decent car. I got a nice looking girlfriend. Come on. Yeah, easy. Because by this time, they're showing up in my life. They've shown up in your life. Uh, they're like the swallows returning to Capistrano for alcoholics. You know, they just show up and they say things. And they're, and they're always the same people, right? They're the well-meaning people. This is family members, girlfriends, friends that knew us back in the day, employers, uh, district attorneys, doctors that are stitching us up and we don't feel the needle and they think that's a bit odd. And they showed up in my life and they said things to me that I know they said to you, things like this. You're a great guy. You have a lot of what? Potential. Potential. You know, you could probably be anything you wanted to be if you just quit drinking. You could go anywhere you wanted to go and do anything you wanted to do if you just quit drinking. You know, you'd be so happy if you just quit drinking. All your dreams would come true if you just quit drinking. Here's the problem with that analysis. I lay my experience against that. And what do I find if I just look at my experience? Well, I went to jail. I was drinking, crashed the car. I was drinking, broke that heart. I was drinking, lost that job. I was drinking. Yeah, it's very easy for a guy like me to make whiskey the culprit and let myself off the hook. You know, if I didn't drink, everything would be fine. And what I don't realize is I'm in a slow process of acquiring something that we call self-knowledge. I'm starting to lose the argument with myself that I don't have a problem. People are wearing me down. It's hard to ignore when they're showing up in your life with a greater frequency as time's going on. People that are concerned about your drinking. It's easy to brush off at first, but suddenly I'm 25 years old. And I got sober at 31, so just to keep sight of this timeline, I'm 25, and it, it's obvious there's a problem because everybody that knows me is talking to me about my drinking. And I don't want that to be true, but it, I can only ignore it so far. And self-knowledge is delivered to me as a gift. It feels like a gift. And it does. it's not delivered by a family member, you know, or or an arresting officer or a doctor or any of those things. Self-knowledge came to me in a dirty motel room. I was on a three-day binge and I was alone in this room, two o'clock in the morning. And there was a lot of screaming, I thought, in the room. And I realized the room was dead quiet and it was in my head, in my voice, repetitively saying, if you don't do something about your drinking, you're gonna die. And it shocked me. I never had that thought before. And I sat up straight. And sobered up just a little bit. And that gift, that so-called gift of self-knowledge, I got to tell you, it produced hope. It felt powerful. It felt like some type of a solution. It felt like, okay, I'm done fighting what everybody's been saying to me for years. You know what? Now I agree with them. And I made a decision in that dirty motel room at two o'clock in the morning that I wasn't going to drink. 
Now, I certainly didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's ridiculous. That's for weak people. I wouldn't do a thing like that. Uh, I did what a lot of us do when we get the so-called gift of self-knowledge. Here's the problem with the gift. When you get it and you haven't been to Alcoholics Anonymous, well, then you couldn't have read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a volume of truth about alcoholism. So you couldn't have got to page 39, which clearly states for the real alcoholic, he will absolutely be unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize, to smash home to our alcoholic readers the truth as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. Well, I missed that because I hadn't been to AA and I hadn't read their book. So guess what I was about to acquire? Bitter experience. And this is, this is where you've, you've lost. Everybody knows this expression, right? Ignorance is bliss, right? Mm -hmm. Boy, the ignorance is bliss uh, section of my story has just ended. That period of my life is over. There's no more ignorance. Now I know I shouldn't be drinking. And I agree with that. So I don't go to AA and make the alcoholic declaration. I'm quitting drinks, so don't try to tempt me. And uh, I find myself drunk in two weeks. And what starts for me is a six-year odyssey of various vain attempts to control and enjoy my drinking, brief periods of recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. A feeling I was regaining control to find out I had lost still more control. All three of those statements are from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in chapter three. I'm living chapter three and I don't know it because I've never been to AA. I'm gathering bitter experience because what I'm doing is I'm taking on alcoholism with what I bring to the game naturally. And what do, I'm a human being. I Everybody brings the same things to the game of life naturally, right? Instincts, intellect emotions, experience, and I'm applying that to my alcoholism and I'm losing every battle. I'm overmatched. I'm bringing a knife to a gunfight. I think it's a matter of willpower. I think it's a matter of information. I think it's a matter of understanding myself better. If I just understood why I did these things, I could stop. And I stop. I stop for a week. I stop for two weeks. I stop for a month. I even stop for six months once. This is all without AA. And I'm concerned when I stop because I've been brainwashed, like many of us, by people that love me, that have promised me if I stop drinking, everything will be fine. But I've stopped drinking. And it's getting worse. I've stopped drinking. And I'm irritable, restless, and discontent. I stop drinking, and in two to five days after I stop, my world starts to turn gray, and the color drifts out of the picture, and I don't see the point of this. And I'm hanging on. And I say, not today, I'm not going to do it today, but I don't know how long I can take this. So when I have that attitude and I'm in a brief period of sobriety, physical sobriety between drunks is what I really am. I don't understand. I've already entered into a period of negotiation with the first drink and it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. And I learned not to say, God, it can't get any worse because I found out that it could. And I start doing the things that drunks do when they're being chased by their own alcoholism, which means what I'm running from, I'm running with. And I moved to the East Coast and I live in Boston for three years and I find out much to my chagrin, they drink in Boston and I wear out my welcome there and I come back to Los Angeles and, you know, alcoholics are like cats 
flung outside a second story window. You know, we scream on the way out. We land on our feet in a three-piece suit at a job interview, and we get the job. And that's what happened to me when I got back from Boston. (laughs) And you know the rest of the story. I did great work. I rebuilt my life. And six months later, I tore it all down with a senseless series of sprees. And I end up more dead than alive where tough guys like me end up. You know, I'm at my sister's house in Simi Valley, California, drinking to die. I haven't worked in a year. All the good is gone. I have warrants for my arrest in two counties, not because I'm a criminal, because I don't show up in court any more than I renew driver's license. I'm not a functioning alcoholic. So yeah. just out of curiosity, when you moved back in with your sister, what was that like? What was that conversation like? What did the relationship been like? Well, we had always been very close. And she was one of the people, probably the one that was worried the most about me, the one that talked the most to me about my drinking, but also the one that wouldn't quit on me. A lot of people would wash their hands of me. And so I had hit a bottom, lost this job, lost my ability to pay my rent lost my car. I mean, I'm at my bottom, I think. And I called my sister and asked if I could move in with her briefly to get on my feet. And she said, yeah, you can live in my house, but if you drink, you're out of my house because everyone knows I'm a drunk. And I I drank every day in that house for six months until I came to AA. And that's not hard to do when they're working and you're not. I mean, what time do you go to work? Bars open. And (laughs) and, and the, the truth is, I'm, I'm the guy described in the big book. I've lost the power of choice where drink is concerned. And this is so confusing and so painful for the people that love us because out of my mouth, I'm telling you how much I love you. I'm telling you how I don't want to do these things. So I don't want to hurt you, but you don't understand any more than I understand. It doesn't matter. You see, if I had the ability or the understanding of alcoholism, When I stole my sister's car endlessly that summer before I got sober and would disappear on three-day runs, when I broke her heart uh, one more time, and she was so upset with me for letting her down, I would have been able to say something like this if I understood the truth. I go, I know this looks terrible, but this isn't the bad part. You want to know what the bad part is? I'm going to do it again against my will and against your love against consequence, against all the well wishes in the world, I'm going to do it again. It's just a matter of time. I feel like I'm possessed. I feel like I'm a puppet at the end of a string. In fact, if you want to survive my alcoholism, my only advice to you is to get away from me and save yourself because I'll eventually take you with me. But I don't understand alcoholism. So I can't explain that to people I love. So what do I say? I just offer what I have, which is, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to go down that way. I don't mean to treat you this way. Can you give me another chance? And it's inadequate. And it's embarrassing in light of the destruction and the havoc that I bring into the family dynamic. But it's all I got to offer. And it's funny I've been sober 31 years. And when I talk like this, I'm not here. I'm in the living room of my sister's house in Simi Valley, California. And I'm I'm sitting on the couch with her and she's crying and I'm crying and I'm, I'm making these promises and I mean them with everything I got. 
I'm not lying. I never lied once in my life when I said I wasn't going to drink anymore, when I said I wasn't going to hurt you again. I never understood. There's no room for the truth where the game of alcoholism is played out. And I think back to those dark days where not only was I lost, but my family was lost. You see, it's a family disease and we don't take any prisoners. And if you have the misfortune of loving a guy like me, you're going to be touched by my alcoholism. And there's nothing either one of us can do about it. I've lost the power of choice and you can't stop loving me. So we're joined at the hip and we're going on this insane ride together till either I get sober or I die. And that's the only way you're going to be free. But the misconception is you're not being damaged. And being in this bizarre relationship with an alcoholic, you know, God bless the Al-Anon family groups that give people that have been so damaged by the disease of alcoholism that never drank the way we drank a chance at recovery because the damage is real and the recovery is necessary. And I've watched what my sister went through all those years and I've watched her recovery, you know, as we've recovered as a family. Um, yeah, I, you know, there was nothing new when I got sober. I'd been living at my sister's house for about six months. I, I stole her car again. Nothing new there. Uh, the police were involved. Nothing new there. Um, ended up in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, not because I wanted to get sober, uh, not because I wanted to become moral. Uh, I had already surrendered to alcohol. You know, we talk about surrender a lot in AA, which is great, but we, and necessary. Uh, but there's a different type of surrender many of us make before we get here. And it's a surrender to King Alcohol. And uh, Bill Wilson, actually, our co-founder did it. You can read it in his story. And uh, he talks about getting drunk again against his own will and waking up in the morning just so horribly sick. And it's just, he says this little line. He said the, the will to do battle was not there. And I remember arriving at that station where I just said to myself, who am I kidding? I'm never going to get sober. And I tried everything I could to make my life safe and manageable. Stop driving, stop having friends, stop dating, stop going out at night. stop. And still with all those barriers of protection that I instituted in my own life to protect myself and the world from me, my life got worse. There were still the explosions. So I had already surrendered to the fact I was going to die drunk. It was just a matter of when. And the way I ended up in AA is my sister was going to throw me out. And I just played the recovery card. It wasn't a long list of sobbing and begging and give me another chance. And I'm so sick. I have nowhere to go. You got to give me a couple of days. I'll go to AA and everything. To this day, I don't know why I said that. I was not thinking about AA the day before I got to AA. I think it's the first indication of that, a concrete indication that God was working in my life. And I ended up in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I do not remember. But I do remember my sister drove me there and took me home from AA because she didn't believe I was going to go. And my story is a story of the power of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we underestimate the power of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I don't think we argue about the power of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is contained in the big book in our first 164 pages. And really 
Our first 100 pages or so contain the 12 steps and the directions for the resurrection of an alcoholic life. Nobody argues about the power of the program. But sometimes we, we say things that I think are, they're not helpful. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. And, and I don't mean to be opinionated, but we say things like uh, meetings won't keep you sober. And uh, we shouldn't say meeting makers make it. We shouldn't tell people 90 meetings in 90 days. And, and, and you see, that goes against my experience. And that's really what we're supposed to share here is experience, strength, and hope. you got to realize, uh, I'm a chronic alcoholic. I've lost the power of choice where alcohol is concerned. I'm just lucky enough to have arrived in AA in that state at the low point of my existence where my car read zero and my tank was on empty. I have no relationship with this power you all seem to have a relationship with. I don't understand the steps or anything or the funny language they speak in Alcoholics Anonymous, your slogans and let go and let God one day at a time. I met a guy early in recovery and he used to always say, if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. And I think, oh, he must be the president, you know, it's like, <laughs> when you come up with this crap, you know, so none of that stuff's going to be helpful to me. You're going to have to carry the message to the alcoholic that still suffers. Now, you see, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous working through members that were at the meetings is what saved my life. Because my second night in AA, I'm negotiating a drunk. And it's not any more complicated than this. Nobody had done anything wrong. Nobody said anything that offended me. I didn't hear the word God and cop and attitudes. None of that. I've lost the power of choice where drink is concerned and I'm coming up on 48 hours without a drink of alcohol. I'm physically addicted to alcohol. It's not any more confusing than that. And I'm going to leave Alcoholics Anonymous on my second night and I'm going to go get drunk and it will cost me everything. Definitely cost me my place of residence, the love of the last relative that have anything to do with me. More than likely, it'll eventually cost me my life, but small price to pay. If I can make the madness in my head stop for just a couple of hours. Mm. And I've always been willing to pay that price. My own experience bears that out. How many times have I gotten drunk when I consciously knew this will cause disaster in my life? Yet I did it anyway. So leaving AA with two days of sobriety to go get drunk. I, I, I'm always astounded that we're confused when that happens. Well, I can't believe he got drunk last night. He was at the meeting. He was doing well. No, Really? You, you thought it's three days ensured li lifelong sobriety? What happened to me in AA is a classic story. I'm a product of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm ready to leave and go get drunk. I'm hanging out between the 6 o'clock and the 8 o'clock meeting at a place called the Simi Valley Alano Club. Right off of Los Angeles Avenue in Simi Valley. It's 1991 September. And uh, as I'm looking at the door... A couple of good members of Alcoholics Anonymous were in that room that night and they saw me and I didn't look that night the way I look today. You know what I mean? I hear down the middle of my back and it's dirty and I've got a full beard with food stuck in it. I've lost the ability to speak the king's English. I don't smell good. You know, I, I can't talk in complete sentences. I communicate in a series of hand gestures, grunts and clicks. You know, I'm, I've been hitting it really hard for a long time. And these two guys took, I think, I would think is the most important action we'll ever have the privilege of taking in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. They just walked across a clubhouse and cordially welcomed a man to Alcoholics Anonymous 
who was obviously dying from the disease of alcoholism. And they did it in the kind, unassuming way we're taught to do it. They just introduced themselves. Hi, I'm Lou. This is Mark. We don't think we've met you. Why don't you come sit down with us? Now, the reason I think that's so important is I believe it saves lives. Because if you're waiting for me to introduce myself, ask for help, work the room, shake hands, I hope you packed a lunch. Because <laughs> you're in for a long wait. Because I don't have it in me. I'm at the low point of my existence. I've alienated everybody from me in the world. I'm the guy described in the chapter of vision for you. The less people tolerated us, the more we withdrew from them, from life itself. Mm-hmm. As the chilling vapor that is loneliness, it settled down, becoming ever blacker. Then we sought out sordid places, hoping to find momentary companionship. Then would come oblivion to awaken to the hideous four horsemen, terror, frustration, bewilderment, despair. Unhappy drinkers who read this will understand. Now, that was my story before AA. That's the personality that walked in. I'm done with people in the world. I feel lower than you, less than you. I've destroyed my life with no help. Uh, Not only did I destroy my life with no help, I did it while people were laying down across the railroad tracks of alcoholism that loved me, trying to slow down my descent into hell, and I never tapped the brake. People in AA, when I got sober in the Simi Valley Alano Club, understood that. And they carried the message to me and they grabbed me and they sat me down. And then Lou pointed at Mark and said, Don, this is Mark. He's going to be your sponsor. And then Lou walked away. And I'm sitting there with this man I don't know who I just learned his name. He's been identified as something called a sponsor, which I don't know what that means. I mean, I know what sponsorship is, but I didn't. Are you going to buy me lunch? Are you going to buy me clothes? You know, you think of that, those terms. And it doesn't matter. You see, this is the beautiful thing about being new in AA and good AA, you know, where people understand how how the fellowship works. Uh, I don't have to understand any of that, do I? Because he understood it. And in that moment, my life changed, but I didn't know it. If you would come to me and said, Don, you just had the most important moment of your life. I would have said, what happened? I missed it. I I wouldn't have recognized the value in the moment. But here's what happened. The guy who got assigned to me as a sponsor turned out to be an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, when you're an active member, there's some stuff that comes with that title, right? He's got a home group. He's got commitments in the group. He knows a lot of other alcoholics. He's in the steps. He's in the big book. He's in the literature. He's in the service structure. He has all these spiritual tools in his toolbox. And I didn't understand the main job of the sponsor is twofold. One, give all the tools to your sponsee that you've been given. So everything that he's got at his disposal is laid at my feet on my second night of recovery. Now, that's a problem because I don't know how to use any of it. That's why it's a twofold solution. His next job is to teach me how to use all the tools. You see, sobriety is a gift. We say that all the time. Sobriety is a gift. Sobriety is a gift. And it is. But it's a gift that comes unassembled, right? And it turns out that Alcoholics Anonymous meetings contain the master mechanics of all the spiritual gifts of sobriety. And my sponsor and his friends were the ones that put the gift together in my life. And that's another interesting fact. I didn't realize that when you get a sponsor in AA, you automatically 
inherit all their friends. Now, I want to be clear, when you're new, <laughs> this does not feel like an asset. What it feels like is there's a bunch of strangers up in your business and you're wondering, why am I so damn interesting to these people? I walk in the room and they're like, hey, how are you? How much time do you have? What do you step are you working? And you're like, oh, my God, leave me alone. But look at it this way. Go ahead, John. Yeah. So, I, you know, what I think I'm going to do here with, the, yeah. and I, you know, when we. When I start this with an individual, and I talk to you about this a little on the front end, right? It's just kind of an organic conversation. I never know where it's going to go. But what I think I'm going to do with this, this particular topic, if you're okay with that, this particular episode, is label it step one of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because a lot of what you've been talking about is a really detailed, very incredibly good version of what yeah. step one is, right? We admitted we we're powerless over alcohol, yeah. that our lives yeah. have become unmanageable. Yeah. And then I want to talk to you when we're over here and just kind of, if you're, if this is something you enjoy, we'll talk about coming to some of the, um, uh, logistics of this. I'd like to have you back on again because we're just now getting you sober and I want to hear about your sober story as well. Would you be good right. with that? Yeah, absolutely. This absolutely. Has been fun. Yeah. So this is, this is great. You, I, I knew you had some great content. I had heard some of it online and that it just being able to talk to you with a one-on-one -on -one and listen to this and take some notes has been absolutely incredible. Um, we always ended here with page 164 from the big book and page 164. I just got to find it real quick. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Don, once again, this has been uh, like I have guests every once in a while. And I just say this is chock full of nuts. This has been chock full of nuts. I just absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Absolutely. Look forward to talking with you again. Thank you again, Don. And for those of you listening out there, if you enjoyed that episode, please take some time to pause your device and hit that little share button. Send it out to a friend or family member. That episode may be just what they need today. Now, oh, and we're going to have Don back on for some uh, additional recording here at some point in the near future. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback. John writes in and he says, hi, John, another John here. He says, I'm sure you get a lot of people's stories sent to you, so I will try to be brief. On the 6th of November last year, I woke up at 2 a.m., as I often did, having passed out at 8 p.m., as I often did, having drunk all afternoon, as I often did. I was in that awful limbo between drunk and hangover, as I often was. 
Heart pounding, mind racing, that sense of shame and fear was rising. I had been thinking about AA for some time, but did not have the courage to go to my first meeting. Anyway, for some, me- for some reason that morning at 2 a.m., I googled sobriety podcast, and yours was the first link. I put on the first episode of Sober Speak to help me get back to sleep, and, and my first miracle happened. Within seconds of hearing your voice, and something within seconds of hearing your voice, something just shifted in me. It felt like I had arrived at the place I was, I, I was always meant to find. In that moment, as I listened, I knew I was home. That's really cool, John. That's really cool. He says, I went to my first meeting ever the next day, and I have continued to listen to your podcast from the start. I'm still some way behind, and part of me hopes I will never fully catch up, so there will always be meetings between meetings. Due to the nature of my work, I can't get to meetings every day, and I do a lot of driving, so your wisdom and that of your guest have been a constant companion. Listening to your podcast was the first thing I did after putting down my last drink, and after over 20 years of drinking, I am still sober 97 days later. That's fantastic, John. Gosh, 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 I don't even know what to say. Um, At first, I worried that alcohol might kill me, and then I came to accept that it would. And finally, I was at the point to where I came to welcome that outcome. So I do not say this lightly when I say that you saved my life. I would like so much to meet you one day, and I'd like to meet you too, John. But Dallas is a long way away. From here, that said, many miracles have happened in the past three months, so you never know. From ne- for now, I would just like to say thank you and God bless you, John R. And I could tell from his email, I emailed back, but I haven't heard from him yet. I think he's in uh, the United Kingdom. And uh, I do hope we get to meet Eyeball to Eyeball someday there, Mr. John R. And God bless you, my friend, and thank you. That made my day. Gosh, you made my day. I really appreciate it. Janice writes in and she says, hi there, John M. And a big wavy emoji. I've been a loyal listener for a couple of months now, and I really enjoy the speakers you have on the podcast. I hail from Sacramento, California. My sobriety date is July 29th, 2022. I just got my six month chip. I am so, oh, and there's a little big party uh, celebration uh, emoji. I'm so happy I found the fellowship of AA. I did a search after Thanksgiving for AA type podcasts and yours pop right up. I've been quote addicted, unaddicted ever since a big smiley face. Well, that's the kind of addiction we can like, right? Uh, She says, thank you again, John M. Keep up the great work. Janice N. from Sacramento, California, and a little bit of little American American flag there. Thank you, Janice N. I appreciate you up there in Sacramento, California. Justin writes in, he says, uh, John, glad I finally jumped on here. Feel like I'm listening to rock stars. (laughs) Ooh la la, he says. <laughs> I'm going to go leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up and listen. <laughs> Thanks for all you do. Thank you, Justin. 
<laughs> I appreciate you. I appreciate you very much. Oh, here's a cool one. I remember this. Mateo writes in. He says, hi, John. Mateo V here from upstate New York. I am grateful to be sober since June 1st of 2021. I married the love of my life on May 29th. Oh, May 29th is my... uh." Uh, sobriety uh, birthday there, Mateo. Anyway, uh, he says, I married the love uh, of, <laughs> of my life. The love of my life on May 29th, 2021. And I knew I was an alcoholic well before then. In classic fashion, I promised myself and my wife I would get clean after, <laughs> after the bachelor party and the wedding, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, well, damn it, I actually followed through. Whoa, <laughs> that's a first. <laughs> that's great, Mateo. He says, we, re- we recently welcomed our first child to the world on January 24th, 2023, and I've been struggling to stay connected to the program with the erratic sleep schedule, or lack thereof, and tending to this tiny human intending to tiny human needs whilst on paternity leave. I wonder if he's from uh, uh, Australia. They they uh, they use that term whilst there, but, or New Zealand. But anyway, he says, I'm so grateful to you for this podcast. I'm sitting on my couch in the dark at 11 p.m., feeding my newborn daughter and listening to part one of your chat with Gary Kay, thinking, what a time to be alive and sober. Oh, Oh, wow. I've had Sober Speak in my podcast feed for months, but never listened to an episode until these past few weeks. As I work to get back to my in-person home group and establish a schedule again, this podcast has me close to the program. It keeps me reading, reaching out to my sponsor and fellow alcoholics, and now it's got me emailing you. <laughs> All my best to you and yours. I'll keep listening. Three hearts, three big hearts, Mateo V. And Mateo added a picture of himself lying on the couch with his beautiful daughter, uh, and it's just precious. And so I went ahead and responded to him and said thanks. And I copied Gary K because he had mentioned that in because he had mentioned Gary K in the email. And Gary K responded because uh, I told him you know how how lovely it was and all that sort of stuff. And Gary said, "I'm with John. What a picture and a real reminder of." For me, a falsehood often spoken in the meetings that being you, you that, that being that you have to do it for yourself, the program that is for yourself. And then Gary says, no, we have to do it for ourselves, but we do it for others like the gift you hold in your arms. And he's talking about the little baby girl that Mateo is holding in his arm and just, oh my goodness, how precious. Thank you so much, Mateo, for writing in. And God bless you, my friend. Sam writes in, he says, hey, John, I'm from Nova Scotia. Oh, I think Sam may be a, uh, 
I can't remember. Uh, I think Sam's a he, but it could be a she. My apologies. I'm forgetting here. I'm from Nova Scotia, Canada. My original dry date was in May of 2020, but after much consideration and a healthy dose of honesty, I changed my sobriety date to January of 2021 to reflect when I quit cannabis. I have a sponsor who has, who has a sponsor, and I have two sponsees, and I hope that one day they will be sponsors. I am of service in my home group and at our central office. I found Sober Speak on Amazon Music Podcast after searching sobriety. At that time, you were over 100 episodes in, so I had some serious catching up to do. I usually listen while driving, uh, cleaning, or while I'm at the gym. And now I'm up to date and check for weekly new episodes. I'm not sure I could say I have a specific favorite. And you can always tell when they're from Canada, they, they spell favorite with a, uh, a U in there. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm not sure I could say I have one specific favorite speaker as I get a little something from all of them. The last episode I listened to was Marty C., uh, my friend Marty C., on step one, episode number 238, because I'm going through the steps for the second time. We're better, we're better to start than at step one, as told by a fellow Canadian. Oh, and this, they're here. This episode's about step one. So anyway, she says, thank you for your service, John. I'll look, uh, look, look forward to learning more in your super secret Facebook group, Sam B. Well, Sam, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And uh, we're glad to have you in the super secret Facebook group. And just in case you're hearing about that for the first time ever, go to our, go to your Facebook application. Search up super, excuse me, uh, sober speak secret group, ask for admission into the group and we will get you on in. All right, everybody. That's another week. Uh, take this one week at a time. I uh, hope to be back next week. God bless you. Keep coming back. It works. If you work it, may God bless you and keep you until then. Love you guys. <laughs>